0: Take on a new text, new passage, new chapter this morning. Romans chapter 8. Let me again welcome all of you who are visiting with us this morning. We do deeply appreciate your coming to New Life Baptist Church. And we do honestly hope that you'll return to be with us. And I hope that uh, you'll find our people warm, friendly, and kind. And uh, we want to be a help to you as we can. And so please let us know what we can do to make things easier for you. Mention to you couple of things one at the table in the foyer with all the tracks and material on it are for you to take and obviously always some material around here as we mention often we don't sell anything everything is uh, to be given away including the tapes of the services and especially those during a revival with brother hurt and last sunday's with brother mount uh, we encourage you to get those they're free of charge and you take them and use them and share them with people as you can But uh, the material on the table really is uh, tools of our trade, you know, to get the gospel out, the message of God's word. So let me encourage you to take those with you. And let me especially encourage you, if you go places to eat, that if you leave a tip, that you leave the tip inside the track and and leave a tip that would be commensurate with services rendered and also uh, encouragement to those people to whom you're going to give it. Uh, those folks who uh, work in those places, as we've found out lately, are just people who, like you and I, have their daily burdens and cares and concerns, and they, uh, they take openness to people like you, being friendly to them, to speak to them and share your heart with them as they share theirs with you. So let me encourage you to be a faithful track user, and uh, I'm confident there are folks out there who, if they found out you cared, uh, they'd listen to what you've got to say. But I think they need to know you care first. And so let me encourage you to take along a supply of tracts and use them this week and sharing with folks you meet. Romans chapter number 8, we read the first four verses. Paul comes to this chapter stating the following. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It's an interesting thing. This uh, passage of Scripture sets up and sets ready for us, I guess, to embrace on one of the great chapters of the Bible, and especially one of the great chapters in the book of Romans. It is considered to be sort of a mountain peak passage, and one of those chapters that has so many truths wrapped up in it that... Uh, certainly, preaching through it the way I will will not cover all those, and I'm not so sure that all the preachers who've ever preached have covered it well. But the fact of the matter is, it is a kind of chapter that encourages you to move to higher ground spiritually. And this chapter and this passage of Scripture reminded me, as I read about some mountain climbing this last week, I, I'm a kind of guy who likes to watch people climb mountains. Don't like to climb them myself, but I like to watch people climb mountains. And uh, I heard of the endurance race this last week, you know, where the guy died. I don't know, uh, an experienced mountain climber and, and mountain bike rider and a guy who repels up cliffs and, you know, how they do all that and swim three miles or 30. Uh, this guy just was the best in the country, and he died, died doing what he'd been trying to do. I was interesting. I was reading a, a section this last week in a magazine about mountain climbing. And it said it's a fact that time after time, the effort after effort, the highest of the Himalayan peaks, Mount Everest, has defied conquest. Uh, Mount Everest, as you probably know, is the mountain range between uh, uh, Tibet and India. And uh, Mount Everest has been conquered before, but the fact is it still people uh, try very hard to climb that mountain for whatever reason. Climbing teams, it said, it said um, after climbing team, have with great Courage attacked the windswept summits of the Mount Everest Mountain. It said, these climbers have literally devoted their money, their time, their energies, in some cases, their very lives, to climbing this mountain and others. On down in the article further, it said, it talked about that there is in the Swiss Alps a village, or in several villages there, where um, there's a group of men in the climbing season if you go into the Swiss Alp villages, you'll find this group of men who are just sitting around. What's interesting about them, they're all dressed alike. As you see them meandering around the streets, sitting around the cafes and sitting out on the streets, you'll notice that this group of men have a purpose and a cause. In fact, they're dressed in, in what they listed here was a dark blue uniform wearing silver badges. And you'd ask yourself, what in the world are they for? Well, these are the men who are called mountain climber guides. These are the men who sit around those villages just waiting for some person like you or I who are interested enough and paying out enough money to climb one of those mountains in the Swiss Alps and you go up to these men and um, they, you propose a price. You simply say what would you take to take me to, and you name whichever in the Swiss Alps might be Matterhorn or one of the others, you say what would you take to get me there or is that what you do? And he says that's what I'm here for. That's what I'm here for. I'll take you on any mountain height in the whole of the Swiss Alps. You name it, and I will get you there. Many of them will add, I guarantee I will get you there. I guarantee that. No loss of life and no injury. I will get you there and back. Their whole life, everything about these people, this group of men, is to get people up those mountains. That's what they're there for. These men, as the report went on to say, they've gone through hard, strenuous training. They have passed rigid tests of endurance, and they have but one passion in life and in business, and that's mountain climbing. That's interesting. For me, when I think of that, I think of of an article that I read about a month ago, a historical document. This little piece of paper came out of one of these devotional kind of things. It said, George Washington was a master of art of motivation. In 1777, his soldiers faced a cold, bleak winter of inactivity on the mountain near Morristown, New Jersey. Washington noticed the signs of restlessness and grumbling. Grim-faced, he told the engineering officer that a fort must be built quickly. He had the sentry guard increased. Work on the fortification started on the double. The soldiers snapped out of their lassitude and began guessing when the attack might occur. When spring thaws came, the fort was not quite finished. The general simply gave an order, we're moving. But will we move before the fort is finished? The chief engineer asked. It has served its purpose. Washington replied with a twinkle, the fort was just nonsense. It was to keep the men busy. something that they thought was important. Nonsense. That's the way I look at mountain climbing. I think mountain climbing is nonsense. If the Lord wanted me up there, he just somehow put me up there. There's no need me climbing up there. But the fact of the matter is, if you're a believer, you're here for mountain climbing spiritually. Spiritually speaking, there is things that God has set before you that he expects you to climb over. We would call it mountain climbing. Some of the things that come into our life that are not very pleasant. We'd say, I don't like this thing. Well, it's a mountain, and you're going to have to climb it. And what God is saying is, I've equipped you to climb it. You are a mountain climber. That's what Christians are for, mountain climbing. The spiritual mountains that are placed before you that you will indeed conquer and do so for the glory of God. And everybody in this room has had mountains that they had had to climb, or they will have mountains. I was interested in looking through our songbook and in several passages or songs that our songbook sets before us is this concept of, of mountain climbing. For instance, here's here's one I guess that we probably are more familiar with it's a song written by Johnson Oatman. He writes, I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound. Lord plant my feet on higher ground. Now some say, Well, wasn't he talking about heaven? Ultimately he's talking about heaven. But to get there, his ideal is that there's a lot of process of higher ground he has to conquer. He says, My heart has no desire to stay, where doubts arise and fears dismay, though some may dwell where these abound, my heart, my aim is higher ground. I want to live above the world, though Satan's hearts darts at me are hurled, for faith has caught the joyful sound, the song of saints on higher ground. I want to scale the utmost height, and catch a gleam of glory bright, but still I pray till heaven I have found Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. And then, of course, the song I know you know I like very much because every time I lead music, I sing it. 347, I want that mountain. He goes, I saw the giant of prayerless nest up on the mountain height. He laughed so hard at my unbended knee. No longer in the wilderness I'll stay, and so I cry. I want that mountain. It belongs to me. And as you know, it goes through several issues of mountain climbing that you have to get through. The fact of the matter is, the Bible relates to this same point. The Old Testament. Let me show you just a a quick passage. This one comes in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Uh, The passage of Scripture relates to the children of Israel under the direction of God. Telling them where He wanted them to go and what He wanted them to do and what He wanted them to conquer. And He had already given some instructions to this end. But when you come to Deuteronomy chapter number 1, in verse number 6, it said, The Lord our God spoke or spake unto us in Horeb and saying, Ye have dwelt long enough in this mount or this mountain. Turn you and take your journey and go to the Mount of the Amorites. The fact of the matter is, his point is, that they had spent long enough. They had, as it were, dwelt in this particular circumstance long enough. And this mountain, for all practical purposes for them, had been conquered. Now, he says, it's time to go into the next mountain. And by the way, some of you, if you're not careful, will get caught up with one mountain and forget that there's a whole series of mountains that you'll need to climb. You'll forget that there are other things out there that God wants you to tackle. And some of those mountains may not be as pleasant as some of the past ones. And they may be more difficult. They may be more painful. But the fact is, there are mountains out there in the Christian's life. God-ordained mountains, if you please, that he wants you to climb. He does not want you sitting still, standing still, and dying, as it were, on the vine. His ideal is for you to keep your muscles exercised spiritually and your ambition and vision clear, to move onward, outward, and don't sit on where you are spiritually and think that's all there is to it. His whole ideal in this passage of Deuteronomy, and it carries it a step further, is that uh, in chapter number 2, the children of Israel were guilty physically of what we tend to be guilty of spiritually speaking in chapter 2 in verse number 2 it said the Lord spake unto me saying ye have compassed this mountain long enough turn you northward the fact of the matter is sometimes we not only as it were conquer a mountain and sort of stick around with that mountain a while because we feel comfortable with it but sometimes we absolutely just keep circling it you know, this is our mountain, and we dealt, we dealt with this mountain, and we've conquered this mountain, and we just keep circling it. Like a bunch of Indians uh, circling a camp of, of, of uh, uh, cowboys on a plane. The ideal is that we've done that. Let's go on from that. Let's move from this to something else. And I say to you, that's what Romans chapter 8 is all about. It is the moving on process. What Paul has talked about for seven chapters, as it were, he's now saying it's time to move onward. It's time to take the mountain that lies before us and move onward with it. It is, in fact, from the concept of taking the overview of the Scriptures, the believer's responsibility to climb the mountains that God has set before him in a spiritual way. Paul set the pace of it when he wrote in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's not just a race. That's a mountain climbing too. The word pressed in that context literally is to mean in the Greek to pursue with an effort to follow hard after. So the fact is that's a mountain for you and I. It implies that there is something out there that's not going to be easy, but it is our responsibility to overcome it. And that overcoming process is the one that deals with those mountains. And I might add that no believer will climb far on the spiritual mountains unless he, she hears, believes, believes and appropriates what's written in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is a passage of Scripture that no believer can live successfully, spiritually speaking, without understanding. It's that important. It's that serious. And because it's that important and that serious, there are men who say it's the greatest chapter in all the Bible. I don't go that far. I've been in the ministry too long. I've often said as a pastor, I've learned that whatever chapter I'm studying at any given time is probably the greatest chapter in all the Bible. And uh, and I go to another one and say, ah, this is the greatest chapter in all the Bible. But I would concur. Chapter 8 of Romans is and certainly ranks among the great chapters in the whole of the Scriptures. Somebody said this chapter is the greatest because, one, it starts with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And in between, it defies the fact that there's no defeat. That's a great chapter. No condemnation, no separation, and in between, there's no defeat. I know what he's saying, and I concur with that truth. It is a fact that that's what Paul says for us. Here's what you should understand coming to this chapter. First off, remember that chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans, when we study them, we realize that the whole world is shown to be lost in sin and condemned before God. That's what chapter 1, 2, and 3 said. And whenever you're going to show somebody about their lostness, those three chapters are wonderful to go to and, and point out how man is lost before God. Man is born a sinner. He comes into this world a sinner, and he'll die in this world a sinner unless he repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ his Savior. The second thing you'll find in chapters 3, 4, and 5 of Romans is that these lost, condemned sinners were then seen as justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they are then declared righteous before God. So chapters 3, 4, and 5 point out that these sinners of chapters 1, 2, and 3 come to an understanding of who Christ was, what God did, and He saved them, changed them, and now they're justified, they're righteous before the Holy God of Heaven. Then when we came to chapters 6 and 7, this is the life of the justified sinner. A sinner, just because he's saved by the grace of God, does not mean that he walks out on his patio, so to speak, and everything from there on in is wonderful, easygoing, fun-loving, and beautiful. Doesn't mean that. Chapter 6 and 7 will explain to you the methods of God's sanctification, what God knows about you and what God sees in you that has to be changed and altered in order for you, as it were, to adapt to heaven. Adaptability that's what that's about. It's adapting you for another environment. You weren't born for this world. You're a pilgrim here. You're passing through. You were designed for better things, higher things, more exciting things, if you were. And chapters 6 and 7 will tell you who you are and what God's doing to change you from what you are to what he wants you to be. That's sanctification. What's interesting then about that is when we come through chapter 7 and we end it with almost a sense of defeat because Paul himself says in verse 24 Oh wretched man that I am who shall deliver me from this body of death. Paul was keenly aware of what he was dealing with and every one of us in this room have that evil nature that Paul had. Everybody in this room has to understand that when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if you have, the old Adamic nature did not crawl off somewhere and die. It literally buffed up its armor and said, you got to fight on your hand, my friend, because it wasn't going anywhere. And the battle that you fight on a day-to-day basis is simply the outflow of that old nature having its way. And I say to you, and I say to folks often, every human being on this earth, anywhere, any given point, is capable of the most vile of wicked kind of behavior unless the lid stays on that nature. And what keeps the lid on that nature is your relationship in continuous, what we call perpetual freshness with the Lord. That means you can't just come to church and, and say, well, everything will be just fine now. I do not pick up my Bible all week. I won't pray all week. I won't associate with Christians all week. I won't have any kind of spiritual contact. And And, uh, and I'll show up next Sunday and I'll be just as victorious as the next guy. I doubt that. <laughs> I doubt that. There are people in this room who read the Bible every day, spend time in prayer every day and every service of the church and still fall flat on their faces. And I doubt that you can do it without God's help. And so the whole point is that Paul's going to say, look, for you to live the victorious Christian life... This chapter is essential for you because I've told you how bad it gets. Look back over to chapter nine just as a or chapter seven, just as a refresher in verse nineteen, Paul said, "For the good that I would, I do not the evil which I would not that I do now, if I do that I would not this is chapter seven, verse twenty. it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, a law, not just a, a, a whim or a passing thought. I find a principle of law that when I would do good. I recognize again that there's evil present with me. Verse 22 says, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But, verse 23, there's another side to it. I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul says, that's a bad deal. Boy, I'm telling you, this nature thing is a bad deal. But it can be corralled, and it can be corrected, and it can be dealt with. But it has to be dealt with in God's way. So the question is, how can the believer climb spiritual mountains, mature in his faith, and be all that God wants him to be with the reality of sin nature hanging all over him? The answer, Romans chapter 8. It's a chapter that will tell you how to live the victorious Christian life in its fullness. And by the way, one of the first things you'll notice in chapter 8 when you look over and survey, as it were, these uh, verses in this chapter, which is 39 of them, you'll notice the absence of the personal pronouns that you found in chapter 7. In chapter 7, it was just loaded with personal pronouns, almost 40 or more of them. When you come to chapter number 8, you'll notice that the Holy Spirit takes the center stage and is the dominant person. It's no longer I, but it's the Holy Spirit. And I can tell you right off the bat that the secret of successful Christian living is the substituting of the Holy Spirit leadership in your life for the flesh's leadership in your life. If you want victory, there's only one way to get it. And that is for you to get out of the way and let the Spirit of the Lord take over the leadership in your life. And that's no easy thing. We are all, from the very moment that we cry in a cradle... We are all very much aware that we want our way. And I want it my way, and I want it my way now. The fact is, when you come to realization that when victory is to be yours, that all has to change, there's where the battle rages. When the Spirit of the Lord says, if you want to have the victory, you're going to have to do it this way, and we say, no, 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 this is the way I want to do it, then we have a choice we have to make. We make a choice. Life is full, full of choices, and every single one of them important. Every single one of them will either comply with the leadership of the Spirit in your life, or will defy the leadership of the Spirit in your life. One way or the other, every choice you make will comply or defy. And the passage of Paul sets before here is to say that victory is ours only and always as the Holy Spirit is in charge. Me me dig in and hope you'll stay with us. Romans chapter number 8, verse number 1, there is therefore. First word, therefore, uh, there, we often say in hermeneutics, what's it, therefore? First thing I would caution you about here, and uh, as we come to these words, I look back to see where I think it goes back to. And in this case, I don't think he's talking about just what he has told you in chapter 7. I don't think he's saying, okay, based on what I told you in chapter 7, therefore. I don't think that's all that's here. I don't think it's all that he told you in chapter 6 and 7. I don't think it's just what he told you in chapter 5, 6, and 7. I don't even think it's what he told you 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. I think it's everything he's told you from square 1, verse 1 of chapter 1. He's saying, based on everything I've told you up to this point, you should understand this. And that is, therefore, now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying. And everything that he has said in those seven chapters up to this point is what he's basing, what he's going to tell you now. And by the way, some and often you'll hear this said that chapter 8 and verse number 1 really is the gospel in a nutshell. That there is therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. Christ is that protective place wherein if you are in There is no condemnation to you. Well, it's a secure place. Notice the next word is now. That's a time word. A time word. It means a change that came about in the life of a sinner based on the death of a Savior. It's now that can be so. You can can have the, the position of having no condemnation right here, right now. It's not something you have to die to get. It's something that you can have right here, right now. Because, one, you recognize you are a sinner, but you also recognize Christ the Savior died for sinners. So if I come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Scriptures talk about me being placed into Christ, then I have the security of that fact that there is now no condemnation because I'm in Christ. And He's already taken care of all that condemnation, all that damnation that was laid upon my shoulders for my sin, He took. And when I took Him... I shed all of that because he paid for it. He took care of it. Here's an issue that you need and only you can settle and solve is in, it's put in a form of a question. Do you know of a time in your life when the darkness of sin turned to the light of salvation? Do you know and remember a time when things were black with the lifestyle of sin that you were living and the darkness of sin that you were moving about and then... You heard the gospel, and you heard about the love of Christ and what He had done to salvage you and to rescue you, and you, as a repentant sinner, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope. Do you remember an occasion, a time, a place, when you personally believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? Let me urge upon you and exhort you and beseech you not to wait until the darkness of death comes over you, and then it's then too late. I held a funeral this last week. It was on uh, Thursday of this week. The lady's name was Dot. That's what they called her, and that was what was written on the spray of flowers that covered her casket. I did not know Dot, never met her in my life, but um, a former family of our church, it was a relative, and so they called me and asked me if I'd take the funeral, and I conceded and did. I went up to calling before the services here on Wednesday night, and then uh, I had the service on Thursday. When I talked to the family, and uh, since I didn't know her and I wanted to know everything I could about her, I asked a lot of questions. And uh, as I did, I ran across something most interesting. This lady had attended a Christian church many years ago in Walltown, Kentucky. I don't know where Walltown is. I have no clue. But that's where she grew up, and then she moved here. She'd been here probably 40 years. She was a member of the Walltown Christian church when she lived there. fact is that when she got up here, she got away from church, never went back, and Truth of the matter is that um, really she was pretty out there, pretty much out there, wandering, lost person. And she got up here, and the family that I had contact with, they invited her to come and live with one of them, and so she did. She was in her when one of her residents or relatives is home this week ago. I think it was um, three days before she died, and um, she called out to the nephew that was in the home and said. Someone's in the house. And he said to her, no, there's nobody here but me. She said, yeah, there's some. There's someone in this house. She became so frightened, she clinged to him and she grabbed him and would not let him go. She was not on medication. She was not uh, hallucinating. She was not having any of those kind of things that we sometimes attribute to this. She said, there's something evil in this house. And he said, I don't think so. And then he said just about that quickly, there was a sense of evil there. And there was a sense that you couldn't breathe. It was a sense of which it was just like somebody shutting the oxygen out of the house. And it was just as if something was going drastically wrong. There was a man that was working outside on the properties and he came inside the house. He recognized it and left and would not go back into the house. She began to cry and she says, I see him and I I see him. And this person said, see who? And she said, the evil. And he has my name on a piece of paper. And he has come for me. And he said, that's not true. She said, don't speak too quickly. Your name is on this list too. And he said, what are you talking about? And she said, I'm telling you, the evil one is in this place fact of the matter is she was so agitated and so upset that uh, one of the family members made a phone call to who was one of our former members and asked her if she'd come by and talk with her so the former member said yes i will and said while i'm coming you take the bible and you read to her and she gave her some instructions of where and for about an hour or so i understand they read the scriptures to this woman so when the former member of our fellowship came there sat down with her her heart and her spirit were quietened somewhat, and she led her to a decision of the Lord Jesus Christ. I said to them, they said to me, "Do you believe that?" I said, "It's not a matter whether I believe that or not. That's not the issue here. The issue is that in her heart of hearts, I believe that there is evil exists. I believe a devil exists. I don't know that we e, any of us get personalized attention from him. I'm not sure we're that important, but I do believe in demons." I believe in everything that Christ does, that there is a counter effort to stop it. And I think any time a woman would be thinking about her own death and dying, no doubt to me that the devil would send some imp down here to try to dissuade, discourage, stop the process. I don't have any doubt about any of that. Whether there was something in that house or not, I don't know, and it doesn't matter to me. What does matter to me is that this woman caught the reality that somehow, some way, someone had come to get, take her and she was going to die. It is interesting she died two days later. That's what's a fascinating thing. Did it, 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 it scare her to death? I, I don't think so because the family said as soon as she came that night, they'd read the scriptures to us. She asked the Lord and invited the Lord into her heart. She was quiet and at peace and died in quietness of heart two days later. I'm just simply saying this. I don't think anybody in this room knows when you're going to check out, if we call it that. When you're going to leave this world. And so, therefore, for that reason, it is important that every person in this church, every person under the sound of my voice who will get a tape, will come to face this reality. You're going to die someday, barring the Lord's return. And that being a fact, you better be absolutely sure that you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. Because once you come to face the reality of death and you say this is the end and my goodness, if you sit through a funeral as I did that day and after I had spoken, and uh, I might tell you that um, your faces are much more acceptable to my preaching than those were. There were people who looked at me and stared me down as I was telling them that it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. There were people in that room when the service was concluded, the casket was, uh, let's say, here, and I was standing at the head of the casket. They walked ten feet away from that casket and me. I know I know what that is. That's a fear of death, and it's a fear of dying. It's a fear that if that preacher is telling me the truth, I am in a heap of trouble. And I'm here to tell you this morning, it's not what this preacher says. It's what the Scriptures proclaim. And it proclaims it with great confidence and clarity that you and I are going to die. You can't run from it. You can't hide from it. And there is no need for you or I to excuse ourselves in ignorance to stick our heads in the sand and think death will pass over. It won't work that way. So the obvious biblical mindset is to prepare for it. And that's what the Bible has set for us all through those early chapters. A man's a sinner. He needs a Savior. And chapter 3, 4, and 5 simply sets forth. You can have that by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not keeping the law. Not trying to keep a set of standards. But trusting what Jesus Christ has already done. I say this and say it kindly. You are without excuse to walk out of this building this morning... And not know for sure, for certain, that when you die, as die you will, you'll go to heaven. There's no excuse for that. There's no excuse. It could only be one thing that you would justify yourself in doing that. That you're so full of pride that you can't find yourself to bow to the God of heaven and confess that He, Him alone, has provided a salvation that's full, free, and forever. So if that's what you want, you can have it. But you will have to cross over, run over, stumble over all the barriers of the grace of God that try to keep you from making that foolish, prideful choice. So I hope for you leave this morning at the invitation time, you'll walk down this aisle, allow somebody to take a Bible and show you carefully, clearly, and biblically how you can go to heaven when you die. And know it for certain right here, right now. So that you, along with what Paul writes in chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore right now, this very moment, no condemnation them that are in Christ Jesus. And I tell you that there's nothing in all of life that gives any more assurance of living life as it should be than to know that there's no condemnation hanging over me right here, right now. By the way, the idea of the words no condemnation, the Greek word used here, although it relates to the sentencing for a crime, its primary focus is not so much on the verdict as it is on the penalty that the verdict requires. And that's important. It's really talking about the penalty at the end. There is is no punishment, condemnation that comes from the judgment that has already been leveled against us. There is none of that out there. And it's not for us. The word no, the little word no, it's in your Bible there. The Greek word for that is an emphatic negative adverb of time and it carries with it the ideal of a complete cessation. There is absolutely no condemnation. Zero amount of possibility of condemnation. So here Paul is declaring the wonderful news for every true believer that there is no and there will be no condemnation neither sentencing nor punishment for the sins that the believer committed. That's what he said. And please understand something. Deliverance from the divine condemnation does not mean deliverance from divine discipline or chastening. And there is a difference. And we need to understand that. And that is to say what Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 6, For whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth And scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Don't miss the words. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Doesn't condemn them. He chastens them. He corrects them. He puts them back in line. And that's important. By the way, probably goes without saying, but let me say it anyway. Just get it off my heart. And that is at Romans 8, chapter 8, verse number 1. Paul is not saying, Paul is not saying that there is nothing in the believer's life worthy of condemnation. He's saying you're not condemned because you're in Christ. But just remember chapter 7 is still true. You still have a sinful, wicked, evil nature about you. And so he's not saying that you're absolutely pure, therefore there is no condemnation. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's no condemnation to them who are where? In Christ Jesus. And he's not saying, "Yo, oh, you're all perfect now. You can just go out and you, you there's no sin about you. That's not what he's saying. So he's not saying that uh, that there's no condemnation because we're not worthy of it. He's saying there's no condemnation because we're in Christ. And there is a difference. fact of the matter is, if God were to judge you and me right now, right here, on our behavior, probably none of us would pass. None of us would pass. Because you either have thought, will thought, or have done or will do something that would be a violation of what God would hold as a perfect holy standard. And you remember, you can remind yourself what James said in man that offends in one point is guilty the whole ten yards. So see, you just have to nudge and fudge one little bit make a mistake and you've been had about the whole thing. If you're thinking of keeping a holy standard, it's going to be the basis of you having no condemnation. And that's not it. The basis of no condemnation really has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Christ Jesus, our Lord, who is perfect and sinless and holy. And that's the good news. Interesting, too. Verse says in verse number one of chapter eight there is, therefore, now, no condemnation, notice the phrase, to them which are in Christ Jesus. You see the little word in there. I've always been fascinated by it because I didn't catch all my Greek studies as I should. But our teacher did make a point. Dr. Cliff Robinson, when he taught it at the school where I was, he made this point, and this is coming almost out of the notes I took. He says, when the Bible tells us believe in God or in the Lord Jesus, the word for in in the Greek is S-E-I-S. That's the equivalent, and literally means into. That's the idea of standing outside of the New Life Baptist Church or a house and somebody in inviting you into the house. So you pass through the doors, and you're now moved from the outside to the inside. That's ace. So whenever the Greek word used, ace, it means moving from one place to another place. Means moving into. What's interesting, well, once you go into the house, you are in, I-N. And there the Greek word is in, E-N. What's interesting about it is it's always translated by the English word, I-N. What I'm saying is, once a person has faith that moves into Christ, that's Ace, then he or she is securely in Christ. Even a work on the Greek word says it's a secure place. You know, out there you're not secure. You've got to get from out there in here. And then out there you go ace. You come into. Once you're in, then you're in Christ. And it's saying in this verse of Scripture, so the person has made the move into Christ is in Christ. And therefore, that person has no condemnation. That's what it's saying. See what it means? It means you've got to make a move. You've got to make a move. You cannot be secure in Christ without making a move. You've got to go, up, go from where you were to where you ought to be, moving from out there into Him in order to take this verse of Scripture and say, I feel secure about my relationship to Christ. So my question is, have you moved? Have you moved? There's many verses and many words in the Bible that would apply, or lay down beside a parallel this truth. It was the ideal of converted been converted to Christ. means you've changed. There's been a change that has taken place in your life. So I ask you honestly, has there been a change that's taken place in your life and brought you from outside to the inside? Has that taken place with you? That's what the security of this verse of Scripture is all about. I like what somebody wrote. I didn't write this. I wish I had. There are a few things that I read that I wish I had written. I didn't write this, but I love it. I like how this guy put it. He says, If a stumbling drunkard went into a rescue mission An hour ago and was born again, made alive in Jesus Christ. There is therefore no condemnation for him in this moment. Now listen carefully, even though his headache will last for hours. I like that. He's not under condemnation. Oh, he's got a headache. Oh, yeah, he's going to have a headache. He's going to feel badly for a long time. But he's going to be under no condemnation if he truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and is now in Christ. That's what it's saying. It's saying, hey, look, God knows you're not going to be perfect. He knows that. He did not base his statement, you're not condemned any longer, on your behavior. He based it on the behavior and the work and the finished work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this drunkard in Christ is safe, eternally secure, though he's not perfect. I'd remind you and leave you with this as we close this service. That remember Noah. God said to Noah, I want you to build an ark. And he says, okay. And he says, uh, Lord, in essence, what, what why do we need an ark for? He said, because I'm sending a flood of judgment. So Bible and taking a lot of verses and condensing them. So Noah builds this ark. He pitches it within without with a pitch. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew word for pitch there is a word that's used, an identical word used elsewhere is for atonement, a covering. So it is that Noah and his family were protected and they were preserved from the flood of judgment by the wood and the pitch that was put on that ark. Should be noted too that while Noah built that ark, there is no indication in the holy scriptures that God said to him, Noah, look, I want you to tie some ropes around the outer perimeter of this ark. And I want you to hold on for dear life. And oh, by the way, I hope you make it. That's not what the Bible teaches happened with Noah and the ark. And anybody who tells you it did, obviously, is lying to their teeth. No, when God finished, and when Noah finished the ark under God's directive and instruction, it amazes me that Noah and his family went inside. And then in Genesis chapter 7, in verse 16, the Bible declares, The Lord shut down him in. What that literally is, is after they got inside, God shut the thing from the outside. And there was nobody, and no way, anybody on the inside was going to get outside until God said, come on out. God shut them in. That's what the text says. The Hebrew word's emphatic. The Lord shut them in. He shut it, and He shut them in with the intent to keep them there. And I say to you, what it meant for Noah to be in the ark... It means for the believer to be in Christ. You see, in Christ, where God has placed us, His judgment against sin cannot come because His Son has already paid the price. That's what's exciting. It's like having a burnt spot, and I don't recommend this. I repeat, I do not recommend this, but if you were to go out into our properties where Ted and and, and, uh, Levi have worked so hard in keeping cut this summer... Now that uh, nothing is growing, because most of our property is uh, own sand, and most of our yards, if, you're, if you have any green in your yard, you can think the dew of the morning, because we haven't gotten any rain. So uh, if you have a yard and your yard is yet alive, it's alive because of the dew. What's interesting about that, we have little to no dew here, because we have sand under the surface. And uh, sand is just almost crushed glass. And so what it does, it reflects heat. What happens when the light dew comes, the sand heats up, and it burns off the, the moisture. So we don't have any moisture up here, so our grass almost totally dies off. If you took a match out here and threw it down in the grass, uh, I repeat this a several times. Do not do this. This is don't try this at home kind of deal. But anyway, if you did, it burned a spot of the ground. Now, if somebody else comes along 15 minutes later and tosses down a match, nothing's going to happen. Because that spot's already burned. And that's the way it is with the Lord. You see, God punished the spot for our sin, and that spot was the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter who comes along and tries to do it again, they can't. Because, one, when you trust Christ as Savior, you're placed into Christ the way Noah was put in the ark. The door shut. And no amount of anybody's coming along and making accusations against you is going to make any difference. Because God has already declared you just and righteous before Him on the basis of His Son and His finished work. That's important for you to grasp. The unbeliever's day of judgment is yet before Him. The believer's day of judgment is behind Him. If you're in Adam this morning, meaning you've never trusted Christ, you're still lost and wondering in your sin, then may, may I tell you, your day of judgment is yet to come. There is a place called Hell. People who reject the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are cast into the hell for the temporary period, and then they are placed in the lake of fire for a permanent. So if you leave this life rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ or just simply neglecting Him, the fact of the matter is, your destiny is hell. The Bible makes that crystal clear. But I would ask you, if you know Christ as Savior... Are you making spiritual progress? Are you climbing the mountains that God has placing before you? Or is it one of those cases where you're just singing hymns, sitting in a pew, and waiting until this is all over? You see, there are people like that. There are people who got saved, so to speak, got under the wire, trusted Christ as Savior, but have not made an inch of spiritual progress. They have no thirst for the things of God. They have no hunger for reading God's Word. They have no desire to reach out to a community and ask people, invite people to come to faith in Christ. They have none of that. Zero. None. All they're doing is waiting till this is over so they can go to the next stage or whatever God has for them. That's not the way the Christian life was ordained and what God had planned. And He gave us Romans chapter 8 to encourage us to tackle every mountain that comes in front of me. Some of you are scared to death to talk to people about their faith in Christ. That's a mountain for you. And you need to understand that God wants you to conquer that mountain. Like the Israelites, it's time to quit going around that thing. It's time to go over that thing. If you have a fear of that, let me tell you where your faith comes in. You've heard me say it before. It takes more faith to live with cancer than it does to be healed of cancer. It takes a lot more faith for you to witness to someone scared to death than it does for someone like me who may not be quite that frightened of people. It'll take a great deal of faith. Well, for you to exercise that faith, may I tell you, faith honors God. And when you say, hey, I'm scared to death, but I'm going to talk to these people because I need to share the gospel with them. God honors that faith. And I say to you, that's really the kind of witness that God wants. He wants people who are dependent upon Him to share the gospel. Sometimes we preachers get so confident of talking about the things of the Lord that it's not a big deal for us to talk to people about salvation. But that's not the point. The point is, I need to be dependent upon Him to bless His Word, to use His Word to bring forth fruit. Because unless the Father draws them, I'm wasting my breath. But it's the same faith you operate with. So let me challenge you. First off, in regard to your own personal life and your time with the Lord. You may have a mountain there. You may not have a daily time with the Lord. You may not read His Word every day. You may not have time in prayer every day. If you don't, that's a mountain. You need to climb it, and you need to conquer it. You ought to spend time every single day in God's Word. You'll forgive me, but no excuses and no exceptions and no way for you to get around saying what you can live without it. If you're true Christian, you cannot. Job said it and said it right. Thy Word is more important, as it were, to me than my necessary food. And that's the way it ought to be to every Christian. Secondly, there are some of you who have never in your life, never in your life, shared the gospel with anybody. I challenge you this year. I'll be challenging you often about this fact. The sign behind me says, make a difference. There's no way to make a difference any greater and better than for you to introduce someone to Jesus Christ that can change their life forever. And I say this to you kindly. I will be pushing you, encouraging you, exhorting you, beseeching you. That you take the tools on the table before you and you sow seeds, sow this city down and invite people to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with every chance you can. As I've told the folks on Wednesday night, my wife and I were at a place a few days ago and it uh, this young lady was in a great deal of pain and, and, uh, as a waitress in this restaurant and uh, she asked us how we were doing, how our day was going and uh, I said that's not really the question. The question on the table is how in the world are you doing? And she was in obvious pain and she began to tell us a sad story about having some liver trouble and she's afraid it was coming back and and judy spoke to her and asked her some questions about her health and tried to encourage her about some things we find out she's a single mom we find out that she couldn't take off work she couldn't afford to do so and so she wanted to go to the doctor but couldn't and and what have you and so uh, as things went on we told her who we were pastor and his wife and i told her we'd be praying for her so when she left the table judy and i had prayer and we prayed for her then as we finished the meal, she'd served us. She was very kind, very gracious. Uh, we gave her a tip, and it was that she didn't come back out for a while, and we put the tip in a track, and uh, Judy hand-delivered it to her. And uh, when Judy gave it to her, obviously um, we had to call for her from the back. And when we did, I was standing at an angle and looking back, and the young lady came forward, but she was crying, crying profusely. And before she entered out into the restaurant where everybody else would see her, from my angle, she was crying very, very openly. And then she began to get a towel and wipe her eyes and straighten up her face, knowing that someone outside had requested seeing her as one of the other waitresses had gone to tell her. And when my wife gave her the tip and told her we'd be praying for her, she hugged her and thanked her for that. You see, I say all that to say this, there are a a thousand people out there like this young lady called Angie. And as I promised Angie, we'd be praying for her. I have this week I prayed first of all not for healing for her body I have prayed first of all that she'd take the message of the track and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior and then whatever comes about with the liver trouble if it's in cancer if it is something else and she has to live with it she'll have the grace of God to climb the mountain that she's got to climb but without God's help this mountain won't get climbed and my friend maybe you're facing one of the same kind of thing and you need some help Romans chapter 8 is a chapter that provides the power to climb the mountains that are sitting before all of us. I hope you'll begin today. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for the encouragement that comes from it. Thank you for this chapter 8 that's so uh, vital to our success as believers. We fail and we fail often. That's not the issue of the check, the text. The text is that our security is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He provides the victory that we need, both in a day-to-day operation of living and also in that eternal consequences is when we live this world as we shall someday. And we have that contact with the Heavenly Father. So I pray this morning, first of all, for our friends who are in this building who have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray for conviction of their sin, that they need Christ. And Father, help them to see it, that no amount of sticking their head in the sand is going to make this issue go away. And I pray this morning... Speak to them, show them, Father, your love for them as revealed in the death of your son, the Lord Jesus. Giving of your son for their salvation, what an act of mercy and grace and love. And I pray this morning, bring them to conviction of this need. Man, woman, boy, or girl, may they come today and allow someone to show them from the scriptures how they can be born again. I pray for believers in this room, myself included, that we would see the mountains that lie just before us in our Christian life, that these are the mountains that you've allowed to be placed there. And you've given us the where to of to climb them. Some of us need to expand our options of opportunities of service. Some of us could do more, and we're actually doing less. Some of us have been gifted to do things of which we have not yet tackled. We have a fear. We're fearful of mountain climbing. We have a fear to. we couldn't do it the way it should be done. We have a fear that it might not accomplish what we wanted it to. We have a fear that we might be rejected of men. All of these are mountains that must be overcome. And I pray, therefore, that we may learn the truth of Romans chapter 8 and realize afresh the great work that the Holy Spirit of God wants to do in our lives. But He has to do that work only as we submit, surrender, and give over to the leadership of our lives to Him. So I ask you to help every believer in this room to surrender today. Surrender. Speak to our hearts as we sing the invitation song, Just As I Am. And bring forth the fruit that you've ordained for this hour. Those who are to come for salvation, for baptism, church membership, or just to pray. Whatever the need is, remind them that you'll meet them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Turn, if you need a book, to 282, just as I am. And if God has spoken to your heart this morning about your relationship to Christ, let me speak to you to this end, that we invite you to come. And we promise you, we have no interest in embarrassing you, and we have no interest in making life difficult. But we have every interest in the world to help you to know Christ and know Him in a way that not only frees you from your sin, but makes the Christian life a victorious one. This morning, I invite you to come. If you don't know Christ, please allow someone to show you from the Scriptures how you can know Him. And if God has spoken to your heart as a believer about some mountain that looms ahead of you... This is a good time for you to confront it and tell the Lord you're confronting it. This is my fear. This is my concern. This is what I'm facing, and I'm willing to address that fear as I depend upon your spirit to help me. Give me the power and give me the victory to do what I must do. This invitation is open for you to act upon that which God has said. I encourage you to do that which he wants. If you do, you'll leave here with a sense of victory already beginning, and I hope it'll just grow from there. As we sing 282, you simply obey the Lord. Would you? As we sing, please. Just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you come? Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Let's sing verse number two. God has spoken. Would you come? Please, as we close, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, your Son. And Father, we thank you that you gave your Son for us. What a great sacrifice. Knowing what we were and knowing who he is, such a poor trade. But we're grateful and thankful and will be eternally for you doing what you had to do to save a lost world. And we thank you this morning for the Holy Spirit that you have sent to indwell us, to be our comforter, to make sure that we don't behave like orphans, but rather that we are well-defined as your children. And I pray this morning that as we all will face or have faced in just the recent future, past some mountain, I pray that you'll remind us that... Our victory lies within the submission of the Holy Spirit that indwells us as believers. And Father, for those people in this room who have never believed on Christ as Savior, I trust that your Spirit will continue to strive with them and to work with them and to move their hearts toward the reality that their only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that very soon, maybe even in the services tonight, that they might return and profess faith in the Lord Jesus and His finished work. And I pray you'll cause a reminder to sweep our minds, our hearts today in this great chapter in the first verse as believers that we're secure in Jesus Christ. And in that security, there is no condemnation, both either now or later. And it is a present possessional position. We right here, right now have no condemnation hanging over our heads because Christ has borne it for us. We thank you and we praise you for that. And we ask you now to help us to go out of here and do that which we should do, climb those mountains that are before us, and may we make spiritual progress even this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.